if you have not been eating a whole lot of fruit, vegetables and fiber over the years, it's quite normal to get some excess gas and a little bit of bloating during the, those first few weeks. But there's light at the end of this tunnel because the research has been done about my clinical experience and the research tells us that by about eight weeks in, 97% of people are not identifying as having a problem with excess gas. But if you have just recently made the switch to a healthy, healthy plant-based diet and you're looking for some tips and tricks to help beat that bloat, I'm going to give you some tips and tricks that I use at my clinic all the time. How does that sound? Sounds like a million bucks to me. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Lancaster, California, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 12 of season 6, number 408 overall. I really don't have to tell you this, but bloating just is not much fun. You get the swollen stomach, you get the pain, and because your abdomen is a little bit puffed out, putting on a pair of pants can be a struggle. I mean, it is real, my friends, and it can just overall ruin your day. But the good news is... Today, help is on the way as we dip back to our All-Stars of Health series and welcome bloating expert and gastroenterologist, Dr. Alan Desmond. He hustled to join us for the live show right after making rounds at his clinic. This guy was still in scrubs, but he was on a mission to beat the bloat. So for us today, he has tips for dealing with all of the gas and the discomfort, and that can happen to a lot of us when we eat an unhealthy diet. And the funny thing is, as you'll hear us talk about, a little bit of irony here, it doesn't just happen when we're eating that unhealthy diet. It can also happen when a lot of us, for the first time, are going vegan. The first few weeks can be very interesting, and I'll tell you what, I wish I knew then what we're going to learn about here today. And the exam roomies who joined us live, they had a bunch of great questions for Dr. Desmond. He had the answers that can help here as well. So we're talking about the best foods to eat to bring down that belly swelling and what you're going to want to avoid in terms of food as well. Also getting into late night eating low FODMAP diets, and finding the right amount of fiber to eat if you're bloated. And then perhaps my favorite question of the day is one about potatoes. Somebody wrote in Aaron, I believe it was an exam roomie by the name of Aaron, said, well, look, why is it that French fries cause bloating, but a baked potato doesn't? They're both potatoes after all. So Dr. Alan Desmond gave us the breakdown on that. So we're talking about some major health IQ raising today. But if you're in LA, we would love for you to come raise your health IQ with us in person as well. Join Dr. Neil Barnard and myself for the exam room live and in person at the beautiful eBell of Los Angeles on March 30th. Tickets are on sale now. The VIP packages include a phenomenal plant-based dinner before the show and then priority seating for the podcast itself. 
plus you'll get exclusive giveaways and photo opportunities. General admission tickets also on sale. If you can't make it for dinner, we still want you to come on out and have a great time with us. So pcrm.org slash events is the website to visit. Or right now you can just click the link that's in the episode notes. Want to say thank you to everyone already who has gotten their ticket. Cannot wait to see you there on March 30th at the eBell in LA. But right now, it is time, my friends, to beat the bloat. We are going to be getting some sweet relief with our friend, Dr. Alan Desmond. My friend, so good to see you once again. Happy New Year. Happy Veganuary. Um, I know your 23 is off to a great start. The Physicians Committee, the podcast, reaching so many more people this year. They're just absolutely phenomenal. Congratulations. Thank you, my friend. But what I wanted to talk about today, Chuck, is particularly we are, you know, almost four weeks into Veganuary now. There's probably pr- plenty of roomies here who have made the switch to a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet, maybe for the first time, or maybe they've been eating, you know, a slightly junk foodie vegan diet, maybe things have slipped a little bit, and they've gotten right back into the leafy greens and the lentils and the sweet potatoes and all that good stuff for January. And they're beginning to feel a little bit, shall we say, gassy. What can we do about it? Okay. Now, let's not forget, folks, that, you know, intestinal gas, the production of gas within your digestive system is A, normal, and B, healthy. Gas leaving your digestive tract is actually a normal thing. We need to maybe do a little bit of work destigmatizing this, okay? The passage of gas, or as we say in English, burping and farting, is a normal digestive function. Similarly, if you are lucky enough to be rocking those six-pack abs, and you get up in the morning and you've got that perfect Instagram set of abs, it's completely normal and healthy by maybe 6 or 7 p.m. to have a little bit of a pop belly there because the, in, the gas that is producing your, your intestinal tract as your body goes about digesting all, the, all that lovely fiber and all those carbohydrates and turning them into healthy postbiotic substances, gas is a normal byproduct. So let's stop the stigma. It's normal to produce gas. Can we, can we agree on that first chart? Oh, I'll give you an amen to that. I think that the average, I mean, I don't know how true this is or not, but I've always been told that the average person will pass gas about eight times a day. Is that about right? Studies look at 12 to 14. Um, So yeah, so it's a normal, it's a normal healthy thing. Okay. So people laugh about it. People joke about it. Kids love it. But of course, it's a normal, healthy thing. Now, if you have recently made the switch to a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet, recently known uh, switch to a vegan diet, we know that the average omnivore consumes only about 21 grams of fiber per day. That's 18 grams in the UK. But the average vegan is smashing 42 grams of fiber per day. So you are now eating more fiber, which is a good thing. However, if you have not been eating a whole lot of fruit, vegetables, and fiber over the years, it's quite normal to get some excess gas and a little bit of bloating during the, those first few weeks as your gut microbes and your digestive system begin to adjust to your new healthy way of eating. But there's light at the end of this tunnel because the, the research has been done about my clinical experience and the research tells us that by about eight weeks in, 97% of people are not identifying as having a problem with excess gas 
during those first couple of weeks, maybe a third to 40% of people will begin to experience some gas and bloating and burping and farting. But by week eight, for the vast majority of people, it has settled right down. But if you have just recently made the switch to a healthy whole food plant-based diet and you're looking for some tips and tricks to help beat that bloat, um, I'm going to give you some tips and tricks that I use at my clinic all the time. How does that sound? I would love that, man. And I'm thinking back to when my wife and I first went plant-based years ago and those first few weeks, it was, it was rough, man. Like I was wondering what the heck was going on inside of me. We're talking about like sit-ups on the kitchen floor in the middle of the night, just trying to get okay. something wow. to work its way out. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that's it. That's an extreme case, right? And, but I think for most people, like I said, this will settle down within about eight weeks, but the first thing is, where did you start? Were you a plant dodger before you made the switch to a whole food plant-based diet? We talk about the average uh, fiber intake being like 80 to 20 grams. Maybe you were only eating eight grams or five grams of fiber. Were you a plant dodger? Well, if you were someone who didn't, you know, never saw a fruit, a vegetable, or a whole grain day today, and now you've jumped straight into all these wonderful recipes at PCRM, you have made a huge jump in your dietary fiber intake. So my advice is to take a step back, reset, take a couple of weeks off, and then come back into it low and slow, okay? During that first week, you may like to just work on increasing your intake of fruit. I want you to get up to three pieces of fruit per day, real simple, an apple, an orange, and a banana, whatever you like, a slice of watermelon, a couple of blueberries, three servings of fruit per day. Week two, I want you to work on getting in three servings of vegetables a day, right on top of those three servings of fruits. So now you are going to have a decent cup of vegetables with three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? Then week three, you're gonna work on your whole grains. You're gonna make sure that you are getting three servings of whole grains a day. Now, one serving of whole grain chopped actually isn't that much. It may be, for example, um, two big tablespoons of cooked oats will do. Maybe one slice of a good whole grain bread will do. Uh, one, maybe just um, maybe two or three dessert spoons filled with a good whole grain pasta sir, uh, counts as one serving of whole grains. So over that three week period, you have gradually gotten to the point where you're having three servings of fruit, three servings of vegetables, and three servings of whole grains per day. You are no longer a fiber dodger and you can now embark on a healthy whole food plant-based diet, and I'm sure you will have given your gut microbiome a little bit of time to adjust. That's number one, get in there low and slow, particularly if you've been a plant dodger before. I'm gonna give you one more. If for whatever reason, whether it's due to medication or your previous diet, as you embark on this healthy, high-fiber whole food plant-based diet, if you are constipated, if you are somebody who doesn't open their bowels every single day, uh, maybe it goes two or three days without a bowel movement. Maybe it goes four or five days without a bowel movement. Generally, it's useful to try and get that sorted out first. So particularly with patients who are like that, if they're very, very constipated, I will start them with a stool softener or an artificial fiber supplement such as Ispigula or Macrogal for the first few weeks, just to get their bowel movements up to once or twice a day, soft and satisfying, you know, who wants more than that? It, through an artificial mechanism, 
Because if they are really constipated and then we throw all this healthy fiber in, the bloating and discomfort can actually really go nuts. Not for everybody, but for some people, in which case we want to treat the constipation first. And then once they've got a nice regular bowel habit with magnesium or one of the other things I mentioned a moment ago, then we can get in with the healthy food and they will tolerate it much better. So that's tip number two. Don't go into this thing constipated or if you went into a constipated and now you're really bloated, take a step back and get the constipation sorted out first. Can, can, can I just interject here and, and give you kudos because we are now in season six of the exam room and you are the first person to ever use the phrase soft and satisfying on the program. I, that is just amazing, dude. Like that is, that is bathroom goals right there. My friend, bathroom so goals. satisfying, like peanut butter, Chuck, like peanut butter. Oh man. Um, yeah. so we're, we're, we're talking about people who are just, oh boy, you popped me, man. Um, we're talking about, uh, people who are just getting on uh, a plant-based diet here. Um, I had already lost a lot of weight in my case, and maybe that's irrelevant here, but I was a very much a dairy junkie drinking close to, if not more than a gallon of milk a day. Um, could that have been the reason why for me, it was so extreme for those first couple of weeks is dairy potentially like a real big culprit there. Dairy is a really common cause of excess bloating. So were you still, when you were having all that terrible bloating, Chuck, were you still chugging down all that dairy milk? No, 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 no. I'm just wondering like if that was like my gut microbiome was doing somersaults because it wasn't getting that heavy, heavy, heavy amount of dairy. And that's kind of why all of that gas was building up in there it was because the changes were perhaps a little bit more extreme than they would be for others. Absolutely, because you'd kind of gone from one extreme to the opposite extreme, from an unhealthy extreme to a really, really healthy extreme. And for some people, particularly if people have had abdominal surgery, weight loss surgery, etc., that can be a real challenge to adapt to. And that's why these tips can prove so useful. Right on. All right, my friend. So we've got uh, two out of the three. You got one more for us. I could go for an hour. I've got like eight tips here, but I'm going to give you, I gotta, I gotta give, I gotta give you another tip, okay? Legumes, we love them, okay? Beans, chickpeas, bean burrito, you know, you name it. These are really good foods. There's pinto beans, black beans, the legumes, great source of starches, great source of phytonutrients, excellent source of all that awesome plant based protein, but they're also really, really good at provoking bloating because of those resistant starches and those FODMAPs, those galacto-oligosaccharides, your storage carbohydrates that the beans use for energy that are fed to our gut microbiome, producing a lot of gas and bloating. So a couple of foods that are very typically used a lot in healthy, healthy plant-based uh, cooking that can really be um, culprits when it comes to um, hitting all of those bloating buttons in our body. Uh, number one has got to be legumes. So maybe if you're getting a lot of bloating, taking a bean break may be really helpful. So just to ease off on the legumes, ease off on the beans for a few weeks, and then bring them back in slowly. And when you are bringing the legumes back in, a few things you need to know. If you bring them back in, in disguise, so tofu, which is lower in fermentable carbohydrates, is a good legume in disguise. You get all the health benefits, all the protein, etc. 
tempeh, which as you know, is fermented soybeans, a really, really solid food, really nice addition to your healthy whole food plant-based diet. But because it's been fermented during the process of production, there are less fermentable carbohydrates remaining in the tempeh, so it's less likely to give bloating. And if you, when you do bring those legumes back in, a few simple tricks, make sure if you're cooking them yourself that you, that you soak them overnight, ideally, rinse the heck out of them before you cook them, or even better while you're making that transition. Just make sure that in addition to doing that, that you are cooking your beans really thoroughly or buy them pre-cooked. So if you get them in like a Tetra pack or a can or a pouch, the high temperatures that are used in these big commercial kitchens uh, tend to denature some of the fermentable carbohydrates. So they're easier, less bloatogenic. And you know, with time you can get onto soaking and cooking your own, that's cool. But just while we're making that that transition, find those pre-cooked beans ready to eat can be a good move. I think we've heard on this show before too, even if you get those pre-cooked beans that come in the can, the pouch, whatever, rinsing them off as well before you eat them can also help reduce the gas. Is that right? Because some of the fermentable carbohydrates leach out into that liquid. So you, you can always rinsing is good. But I'm going to ease up on legumes because there's another two foods that feature very, very commonly in lots of yummy recipes. I use them all the time, um, but they can also be key culprits when it comes to producing bloating when we make that switch, and that is garlic and onions. Garlic and onions are both very rich in uh, FODMAP uh, carbohydrates, leading, which can lead to a lot of bloating and abdominal distension. So a good trick for that is instead of using garlic itself, if you want to just use a little bit of dried garlic or a little bit of garlic powder, um, if you're having oils in your diet, then just a little smidgen of a garlic-infused oil can give you all of that garlic flavor. If you have access to wild garlic, which as you know, is just like little leafy green um, that has the taste of garlic, but doesn't have um, the fermentable carbohydrates, that can be a really nice way to get that garlicky, garlicky flavor. And if you have a recipe that calls for onions, I want you to skip the onions, and go out and get some leeks instead and only use the green leafy bit of the leek because the green leafy bit of the leek tastes a lot like onion, does great in a recipe, but it's very low on those fermentable carbohydrates. Don't use the white bulb of the leek because that is going to give you all that bloating. Put that, you chop that up and freeze it and use it later when you've made the transition. Man, I love all your knowledge, man. It's just incredible. I want to say hi to Mommy Vegan Nummy. Again, one of my favorite names watching today in snowy Pittsburgh. All right. Thanks for checking in. Uh, we also have Gates, who is watching in Canada today. Jane is in Rancho Mirage, California. And Susan is in sunny Southern California. So not snowing there, but Susan and everyone else who might be tuned in in LA area right now. Dr. Neil Barnard and I are actually doing a very special exam room live and in person on March 30th at the eBell. Tickets are on sale now. Would love for you to come out and join us March 30th at the eBell. PCRM.org slash events is the place to go to reserve your seat today or click that link that's in the episode notes. VIP packages include dinner beforehand so we can hang out and get a little photo app, get our grub on, and then you'll also get preferred seating once the show begins at 8. So PCRM.org slash events. Hope to see you on March 30th. Um, man, I wish you could be there too, Dr. Desmond, because I think that we would have yeah, a blast taking over Ellen. 
Yeah, man. Always a good time. Um, how about opening up the doctor's mailbag? You feel like fielding a few questions from the roomies? Let's do it. All right, my good man. Let's uh, first take a question from Emily. We've talked a lot about foods, but not necessarily timing of them. Emily is wondering whether eating right before going to bed can cause bloating in the morning. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely right, Emily. Yes. So preferably we want to have maybe four or five hours after our main evening meal before we go to bed. So yeah, because the digestion going to, particularly if you've been suffering from bloating, um, you're going to be digesting and fermenting throughout the night. That may be uh, disruptive to your sleep. And then you wake up feeling bloated and uncomfortable. Who wants that? Fun question from Aaron. I like this. Uh, why is it that French fries cause bloating for me, but not a baked potato? I mean, they are both potatoes here, Doc. Um, this comes to another important tip. High fat foods, Chuck, can provoke bloating. Not a lot of people think about that. And that can provoke bloating, which is more in the upper part of the tummy, in the stomach itself. So a feeling of gassiness and burping and belching and maybe acid reflux as well. High fat foods like, well, basically any meat, um, as well as, you know, your fried foods, anything fried, your French fries, etc. When you eat a high fat meal, it slows your stomach emptying. So your gastric emptying slows down. Peristalsis slows down because it takes longer to digest that fat. It's got to be emulsified and broken down by the light bases in your stomach. So yeah, that's it. It's very common. So when I talk to my patients about dealing with bloating and indigestion, um, as well as acid reflux, we're always looking for that higher fiber, lower fat approach. Speaking about specific diets here, Nikki is wondering about a low FODMAP diet. She's read that that can help also with bloating. Um, so kind of a two-parter here. One, can it help? And two, for those who aren't familiar, what exactly is a FODMAP? FODMAP um, is a little acronym. We love acronyms in medicine. It stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyphenols. So these are substances that are commonly in maybe a lot of healthy foods and the, the, they are fermentable. And in, you've heard me talking about the benefits of fermenting food and eating healthy fiber and everything. But for some people that can cause excess bloating, uh, gas, etc. Okay. If you are suffering with the gas and the bloating, etc., the first thing to do is look at the overall quality of your diet. Are you already eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet or something close to it? If not, why not maybe try and make it that transition using all the tips that we just spoke about number two is quitting the dairy milk so many people are dairy intolerant lactose intolerant that's got to be a no-brainer okay so if your dietary intakes are already healthy and you're not having the dairy and you're not on any medication that'll be slowing down your bowel etc you know you've got everything pretty much dialed in but you're still suffering from bloating and gas etc uh, often after you've seen your GI doctor, your gastroenterologist, and they've done the basic tests to make sure there's nothing worrying going on in there, they may refer you to a dietitian to do this low FODMAP diet. So on the low FODMAP diet, it's really tricky to do. We take out all of those fermentable foods. So goodbye avo, goodbye mango, goodbye, you know, onions, goodbye garlic, goodbye all of that good stuff. And what people often notice is that their bloating and gas decrease. But a low FODMAP diet is generally accepted as not a healthy way to eat long term, number one. Number two, it significantly reduces your gut microbial diversity, which we know is a bad thing. So a really essential part of going through the low FODMAP process is reintroducing each of those FODMAP groups one 
by one to see how well you tolerate them. So the low FODMAP diet can help, but you don't go straight there. You've got a bit of work to do first. I want to say hi also to Allison, who's watching in New Zealand, bringing that global view to the exam room. Hi, Allison. And then also special shout out to L. Anderson, who's in Portland, Oregon. They say that uh, it's their first time catching the live show, and it just so happens to be their birthday as well. So L. Anderson, happy birthday. I mean, somebody's taking time out of their birthday to spend with us, Dr. Desmond. That's pretty cool, man. That's a present to us, really. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, for sure. So happy birthday. Um, all right, let's take another question here. Uh, one from uh, Coco and Books. Well, that seems perfect on a cold, chilly day here. Uh, they write at 120, I love broccoli, but it gives me a lot of gas. Will I get used to this over time? The ability of your gut to tolerate healthy foods is not fixed, okay? It's not fixed in time. So for often, if there's any particular food, whether it's beans or broccoli, et cetera, and if the symptoms that you're getting are just a little bit of gas and a little bit of discomfort, then yes, by all means, say goodbye to that food for a few weeks, but then maybe just try bringing it in very gradually over a few weeks. I mean, you can eat a really healthy diet without broccoli, but I love broccoli. I wouldn't like to have to give up broccoli forever. Um, so bring it back in very gradually, even just one tablespoon each day for a week to see if you're tolerating that. Is that your level? Is that your threshold? Uh, then you're good to go. Um, so yes, those sorts of intolerances aren't allergies. And the gut microbiome is incredibly, um, incredibly adaptable. It changes remarkably with time. So you don't just swear off broccoli forever. We haven't talked much, uh, well, too much yet about sugar. We have a couple of questions about that right now in the chat. Let's grab one from Sherry at 120. Is it true that sugars feed the gut resultant in extra gas? The, the ones that I worry about more than that are actually the artificial... Uh, sweeteners that are added to vegan junk food like sorbitol and xylitol. Um, so those can definitely uh, reduce in bloating, uh, excuse me, result in bloating. In general terms, Chuck, the problem when you eat purified sugar like a Pop-Tart or, you know, that sort of food is that your body breaks that stuff down so quickly it gets absorbed into your bloodstream in the small intestine. So food like that doesn't leave any residue uh, for your gut microbiome to feed on, uh, which can lead to its own problems in terms of dysbiosis, et cetera. But in terms of sugar feeding bad bugs in your gut microbiome and causing bloating, it's not so much. Although if you're getting a lot of calories from processed sugar and you're missing out on the good stuff, then you're starving your gut microbiome, which may then lead to dysbiosis and other problems. And, you know, I remember back in the day, I would eat a lot of those uh, weight loss bars and they had those um, fake sugars in there, those sugar alcohols, man. They gave me the worst gas in the entire world. It was just atrocious. I mean, about as foul. I don't mean to get graphic here, but it is the exam room. It's kind of what we do. If you can throw out a term soft and satisfying, I can tell you about this. Um, like what is it about these things that really not just the volume of gas, but just the stench of it is unbearable. I mean, it's like all of these highly processed junk foods. Okay. These things have no business in the human digestive tract. Okay. You know, maltodextrin, carboxymethylcellulose, polysorbate 80, zorbital, you know, uh, xylitol, you know, these are artificial chemicals that are made in big factories, little white powders and liquids that are put into the food system 
no business in the gastrointestinal tract. So when your gut gets exposed to a lot of them, you're like, how do, what do I do with this? You know, this isn't something that humans are designed to consume. Uh, I want to say hi to Wendell in Maryland, Nancy in Durham, North Carolina, and Ellen J, who are watching live for the first time in Florida. Uh, let's take a question here from Nancy, by the way. Uh, Nancy says that they had gastric bypass 16 years ago, started to eat a whole food plant-based diet seven months ago, still has a lot of gas though. Could the surgery be part of the reason why? Um, what can happen there is you, you can run into a problem with excess fermentation of the small bowel. Worth going and having a chat with your GI is the advice I would give there. Many patients are aware of this phenomenon of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I think it's something that's hugely overdiagnosed and you know a lot of people are convinced that they have it when they probably don't. But patients who've had gastric bypasses are patients who would be at risk of genuinely having small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And sometimes that needs very specific treatment. So worth going and having a chat with your GI. What's your take on something like Beano? That's what 50 plus personal training plug plug uh, wants to know about. That was a question at 115 was my tip number seven. We didn't get to it because we got into the Q&A. So when you are making that transition to a healthy, healthy plant-based diet, sometimes digestive enzyme supplements can be a lifesaver. So what these little supplements are doing is they're taking some of the uh, non-digestible carbohydrates, some of the fermentable carbohydrates within healthy foods, and they're converting them into something that the human body can digest and absorb. So you get less of that gas coming from your gut microbiome. So at clinic, I often use these in difficult cases. So we've got brands like Beano, uh, Bean Assist. They both contain an enzyme called alpha-galactosidase, which helps to break down the uh, sugars that are commonly found in legumes. And sometimes I will use an even broader spectrum digestive enzyme supplement. There's a, a UK brand called FODMATE, F-O-D-M-A-T-E, which also helps to break down inulin and some of the other resistant starches in healthy foods. But I don't generally view these as a permanent thing, This, could, but they can be really, really helpful uh, for people who are making the transition. So sure, those digestive enzymes can be helpful. Just be careful if you are buying digestive enzymes, if you are vegan for ethical reasons, just make sure you check that label because many digestive enzyme supplements are not vegan friendly. Interesting question from uh, Atlanta at 109, wondering whether bloating causes temporary weight gain. I mean, we know like your stomach can get a little bit swollen. It can be harder to get into the pants, but are you actually um, putting on weight at that point? In medicine, when we refer to bloating, we're uh, certainly in the gastrointestinal world, um, we're referring to excess gas in your digestive system. I mean, the amount of gas that you're carrying around in your digestive system can vary usually uh, in a single person over a 24 hour period, but also between people, it may be as little as 100 or 200 milliliters of fluid, of, of gas, and it might be up to over a liter of gas, depending on the size of the person and what they've been eating. Uh, but the good news about all that gas is it doesn't weigh anything. Um, so generally bloating isn't associated with weight gain. Let's go back to the sugar question here really quickly. One from Elizabeth wondering about liquid stevia, whether that's okay or it's pretty safe in terms of the risk of bloat. Should be okay. So that's not renowned for causing excess gas and bloating. Good to know. Um, I'm, I want to know. I feel like I kind of shortchanged the roomies on some of the tips here. We opened up the mailbag a little bit too early. Uh, I think we left off after number four or so. We just got uh, seven, which was things like Beano. What do you have else, uh, else on that list? 
cover them. I wanted to talk about garlic and onions. I wanted to talk about rinsing your beans, buying your pre-cooked beans, the digestive enzyme supplements to help reduce those fermentable carbohydrates is on there. And watch out for the vegan junk food because of all those artificial sweeteners and watch out for the high fat food. So just because it's plant-based, it could also be high fat, so watch out. And to that end, we have a comment here from uh, Jay Pat at 107 watching today in Dallas says he's the guy that did the junk food vegan diet. He said it uh, was a wake up call for him with exceedingly high LDL numbers though. But he says back on track, lots of abdominal fat. Um, and he was bloated all the time when he was eating that junk food vegan diet. Um, like all in all, like, is it the salt in there? We have a couple people wondering whether the salt could be a contributing factor to that. You see a lot of these prepackaged high fat foods, even if they are vegan, are still loaded with as much salt as the conventional products. Lots of good reasons to avoid salt. When we talk about uh, digestive health in particular, we know that salt, excess salt intake is a big risk factor for gastric cancer. Okay, so that's a worry. Although we know that whole food plant-based diets substantially reduce risk of gastric cancer, you've got to watch out for that excess salt intake as well. But generally, we don't associate uh, salt with excess gas. Apropos to the other question that was asked uh, a few moments ago, they've got um, excess salt in your diet can cause water retention, so that can make you feeling a bit puffy and uncomfortable. But you know, Chuck, with the junk food vegan diet, I mean, okay, there's some advantages. I mean, is a junk food vegan diet healthier than a junk food omnivore diet? Maybe we could probably argue that. But at, at the bottom, I mean, at the bottom line is that a junk food diet is a junk food diet. And like we mentioned earlier, all those artificial flavor enhancers, artificial sweeteners, uh, preservatives, um, colorants, um, as well as the artificial fats, etc., that are added to those junk foods, um, have no business in the human digestive tract. And if you're getting 80 or 90% of your calories from those kind of foods, then you should expect to have some digestive issues. David is wondering whether cooking your vegetables can help reduce the gas as well. And I'm, I, I know this firsthand um, from people who I've lived with. Uh, they really cook their vegetables, I mean, down to literally almost nothing. Um, because they say, if I don't do this, like I'm just going to blow up the room and they don't want to do that. For many, um, kind of particularly the leafy greens and the kale, et cetera, um, cooking them a lot can make them a little bit more digestible. But overcooking, it's it, you're kind of like describing the uh, big old bowl, big old pot of cabbage that my grandmother would cook, you know, back in the 80s, uh, where she'd have that thing boiling for hours. You know, you'd turn up, you'd turn up at 9 a.m. and she'd be at that cabbage would be bubbling and boiling, ready to be served at 1 p.m. Um, so a, a lot of the time when you're doing that, you're losing a lot of the, uh, the phytonutrients and the vitamins and a lot, of, a lot of the beneficial substances that come with that healthy plant-based food. Um, but yes, overcooking does make food more digestible. What's kind of the sweet spot there, right? Like, is there something that you use in your house? Like, I'm just going to cook this broccoli until it's just this tender, and then I know it's good to go. For me, it's just personal taste, man. I'm, I'm very lucky not to struggle with any significant digestive health issues. Um, thank goodness. Um, so for me, it's just taste. My kids like it done a little bit more. Um, I, like, I like it al dente. 
that's where I like to be. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked much about bread here. William is uh, saying that uh, he did a few elimination diets and uh, learned that wheat products can cause intense bloating. Doesn't experience that it appears so much with sourdough bread. Why could that possibly be? Breads, particularly whole grain breads, not only do they contain um, a lot of good stuff, and but they also contain one of the uh, FODMAPs, one of the fermentable uh, substances. So they're called fructans, okay? You get them in fruits and breads. So for some people, the fructans can be a source of bloating. A lot of people assume it's the gluten. Um, if you don't have celiac disease, it's unlikely to be the gluten. It's more likely to be the fructans. And you can get fructans even in healthy whole grain breads, okay? However, the process of producing a sourdough bread, because there is a fermentation step in producing the sourdough bread, the fructans get uh, fermented before you eat the bread so you don't get so much bloating. And even better than that, the fermentation process that happens in the production of sourdough also, de also develops these kind of unique prebiotic fibers and substances that you just don't get in other breads. So sourdough bread has other reasons why it's really good for your gut and good for your gut microbiome. In fact, there's a nice study done a few years ago where they took people who were all eating a healthy, unprocessed, plant-predominant, high-fiber, Mediterranean-style diet, and they randomized the groups either to have um, a 100% whole grain bread each day um, made with yeast or a 100% whole grain bread that was made using a sourdough starter. And everybody's gut microbiome got a little bit healthier, but short chain fatty acid production was much higher in the people taking the sourdough bread. And we think that's because of all those unique prebiotics that get generated during the fermentation process. I just like sourdough bread because it tastes good. I mean, it, it is absolutely delicious. Right. Yeah, oh, 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 so good. Um, here's an interesting one. Elizabeth at 132, we'll grab a couple more and then we'll let you get on with your day. Stress and anxiety can cause bloat, no? Because stress and anxiety interfere with your gut motility. And if your uh, gut motility is reduced, if those peristaltic waves are reduced, things are sitting in there for a little bit longer, it changes the microenvironment within which your gut microbes are living, and guess what? That may reduce an excess gas and bloating. The connection between your gut and brain is very, very real and very, very important for anybody with digestive health problems. You know, Chuck, if you take somebody who has got perfectly good digestive health, no problems whatsoever, and they witness something, you know, they walk out the front door, they see a terrible car accident, or they receive some devastating news or, or something terrible happens to them. Very often, everybody knows this, people will react by feeling nauseous, they may vomit, they may have to run back indoors and use the bathroom in a hurry, okay? The next day, they will go out for dinner with their friend, but they won't have an appetite, they won't want to eat any food, and their friend says, hey man, you're not eating your lunch. And they say, well, you know, I had this terrible experience yesterday, so I'm not hungry. Uh, that's just a really good example of your, your gut, your gut motility, your appetite, and your gut function changing dramatically due to a 100% emotional stimulus, stress. So if you dial that down about 80% and you are going through a stressful or anxious time in your life, then that can change your gut motility, change how you perceive pain coming from your tummy, and also can lead to excess gas and bloating. So with my patients who readily identify 
um, that stress and anxiety or going through a stressful time in their life is a trigger for their abdominal symptoms, um, including bloating. I will always talk to them about trying to manage that stress. What changes can you make? Can you reduce your work commitments? Can you pull in some more support? Are you interested in trying some gut-specific uh, hypnotherapy? Are you interested in trying some mindfulness practices? Because those are evidence-based interventions. We know that uh, stress-reducing mindfulness and hypnotherapy can reduce um, abdominal symptoms in up to 70% of patients with the irritable bowel syndrome. So really powerful. And if the, if the person who asked that question has already identified the stress as a trigger for them, then they need to maybe make some changes and look at what they can do to bring those stress levels down. Absolutely. Uh, and I would think that it would, uh, reducing the stress is going to help with a lot more than just bloating. Uh, you'll, you'll just be a healthier, happier person overall. Absolutely. The side effect profile is good. Oh yeah. No question about that. Deb, here's an interesting one. Deb and a couple others in the chat are wondering about this. Smoothies, like a green smoothie, is that good for you? Of course it is, right? But does that put you at a higher risk for bloating because of the way that it's already blended up? Are we just digesting that faster and that can increase the risk of bloat? If, if you are suffering from a lot of bloating, then it may be worth cutting back on the smoothies a little bit. It depends how you're making them, right, Chuck? Because you could easily be making like this really nice smoothie and you got your kale and you got your greens and you've got your kiwi and you got your flaxseed and you got everything else. And then suddenly you've got like 50, well, maybe 30 grams of fiber in this single smoothie. Um, so if you're a big fan of the green smoothies and you are suffering from the bloating and the gas and excess um, abdominal symptoms that's really bothering you, then maybe just try cutting out that smoothie for a few weeks and see if it settles down. You're right, because you're sending that, sh that's one big quick load of fiber, one quick load of FODMAPs, et cetera, that you're taking in there. All right, last question. Interesting one, because this is a rather bland food. Uh, Paulina is wondering, uh, what's the deal with oatmeal? Says that uh, they really struggle with gas after eating oatmeal in particular. Ah, so that may raise the possibility of a, it'd be worth having a chat with your doctor about getting a blood test for celiac disease. It can be a crossover between the avena and uh, glutens that are in oatmeal. Uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, secondly, of course, what's, what are you having with the oatmeal? What kind of milk are you using? Are you adding any sweeteners or fruits, etc.? Always worth looking at that. Maybe going right back to very, very basic oatmeal, maybe just made with water or maybe made with oat milk or soy milk and see if you're able to tolerate it a little bit better. There you go. Let's go ahead and close up that doctor's mailbag. That's all the questions we can get to today. But if we didn't get to yours, have no fear. We will save it and do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. And Dr. Desmond, not to put you on a spot, but I would love to bring you back on a future episode as well. Yes, let's do it. Cool, man. What do you have going on right now? Are you just making rounds at the clinic? What, what's up with you? Yeah, I've been in clinic all day. I've just finishing clinic. That's good. I've got a little day off tomorrow, though. But you know, us doctors, I'm going to sneak into the hospital for an hour just to catch up on a bit of paperwork. Um, you know, it's never ending, so you got to keep on top of it. But yeah, good man, been really good. It's been a really good beginnery. Um, been doing some live events. Um, just yeah, it's been been good. It's been really good. You are just the man, and I love what you're doing on Instagram and the lives and just the great information that you keep churning out there. Uh, you really are becoming one of the go-to sources for healthy information out there, man. And I'm just in awe of everything that you've been up to. So uh, my hat's off to you, my friend. But it's really important in January, right? Because so many people are trying a plant-based diet for the first time. I really want to be out there supporting them, 
Um, so this Friday, if you head over to my social media on Instagram, Friday, I'll be doing a live uh, Instagram live to support everybody who is new to a plant-based diet. I'll be explaining to them the health benefits that they may already have accrued in those first 28 days, looking at what the science tells us about that and giving them some really good reasons to stick with it. Soft and satisfying. I feel like that needs to be the new slogan for the exam room. I mean, picture the exam room, soft and satisfying. <laughs> I love me some Dr. Ali Desmond. He's so much fun. Let's talk a little bit more about bloating though. I have some numbers on just how common bloating is. And believe me, if you are going through this, you are not alone, my friend. This is from the Cleveland Clinic. Here's what they say. Between 10 and 25% of otherwise healthy people complain of occasional abdominal bloating, but as many as 75% of them can describe those symptoms as moderate to severe. That's not fun at all. 10% of people though say that they are bloated quite frequently, and for people who have IBS, the rate of bloating is actually 90%. Don't want to live with that. 75% of women also say that they have bloating during their monthly cycles. And of everyone who has bloating, half of them also say that when they have it, their bellies become swollen. It's what they call a distended abdomen. And that means that putting on those pants can be a real, real, real chore. But as we learned today, a healthy diet can help. And a great place to start is with Dr. Desmond's book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. There's a link to pick up your copy right now in the episode notes. And if you have never joined us for the exam room live, man, come on in. The water is fantastic. We do it every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. So set a reminder or just grab the replay right back here on the podcast. Just make sure to subscribe wherever it is that you get your shows. And then if you could also do us a favor and leave a healthy five-star rating for us as well, we would greatly appreciate it. Back on the previous episode of the show, the last episode, hero doctor Steve Loam was on the show. He was the guest. And he, if you recall, was the doctor who saved the lives of two people who were running in a marathon that he just happened to be running in himself. These two people had a heart attack during the race, and he was able to perform CPR and revive them right then and there. A hero among heroes, no doubt about it. And one of the things that we talked about, because he's also a cardiologist, was heart health. And that brought cholesterol into the equation. And I wanted to share this with you. More research, new research on cholesterol has just come out. And this time, the researchers, they were looking at not just the connection between cholesterol and heart disease, but with diabetes as well. This was a huge meta-analysis. It included data for more than 350,000 people. And so what these researchers did was look at people who had a relatively low cholesterol diet and those who had a lot more cholesterol in their diet, people who were eating a lot of things like eggs and red meat. And what the research shows is that the more cholesterol a person eats, the more likely they are to develop diabetes. 
the results show that for every 100 milligrams of cholesterol that's consumed in a day, the risk of diabetes increases by 5%. And so to put that into perspective, just one egg, one single egg, has about 186 milligrams of cholesterol. And we're not even talking about the bacon that may be served with the eggs. We're just talking about the egg itself. So really, you're eating that stuff, you're piling on more and more and more cholesterol throughout the day. And that means that your risk just keeps going up. But the researchers who did this meta-analysis, they also say that the connection between cholesterol and diabetes was stronger in Western countries compared to those in the East. Which, if you think about it, shouldn't really come as too much of a surprise given our proclivity for high-fat, meat-heavy diets, right? That's just kind of what we love here. That's standard American diet, or to broaden it up, the standard Western diet. And that's why my colleagues here at the Physicians Committee concluded this on our website. They wrote, quote, avoiding animal products, the only dietary source of cholesterol, is best for diabetes prevention. End quote. Absolutely. Makes sense to me. The findings from the study are published in the Journal of Nutrition, Metabolism, and Cardiovascular Diseases if you would like to check them out for yourself. There's also a link to the study in the episode notes. And I'll tell you, one of the most fun facts that I've learned here on the show actually came very, very, very early, like season one. We're in season six now. This just always just kind of stuck with me is that our body produces all the cholesterol that we need. We produce it naturally. Had no idea. Just kind of blown away. So anything that we eat that has cholesterol in it is just extra that we do not need. And that extra cholesterol can go right to work on clogging your arteries and now increasing your risk of diabetes as well. Isn't nutrition science just a beautiful, beautiful thing? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that a lot of people who enjoy that nutrition science must have done a very nice thing and nominated us for podcast of the year over at Veg News. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when the exam room popped up as podcast of the year by Veg News. So if you would like to support us, we would love it if you could take a minute or two out of your day to cast a vote. Just head to vegnews.com, click on Veggie Awards and cast your vote. I believe that we are in category number 46. And you can also support some of our friends of the show who are also nominated in other categories. Carly Bodrug from Plant U. She's up for a couple of awards, including Best Cookbook of the Year and Badass Vegan John Lewis. He's also nominated. So if you could help them out, that would be great. VegNews.com. Just click on Veggie Awards or we've made it easy for you. There's a link to go right to it in the episode notes. I believe Podcast of the Year is category number 46. And don't forget also the big live show in Los Angeles on March 30th. I can't believe that we get the opportunity to do this. So cool. It's going to be at the eBell in New York and Washington, D.C. We've got some announcements for live shows coming your way in the near future. But for today, that is going to wrap things up, my friend. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Alan Desmond for being here and helping to raise our health IQs as we beat the bloat. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. 
Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.